it definitely helps. It's not, you know, the old saying is pills don't build skills. And it's not a game changer. You know, it's not going to get me to start doing, you know, something that I've been putting off if I'm not mentally there. It will help with some things, but it's not the end all be all, meaning there's still a lot of skills and um, strategies that have to be implemented, you know, and it's a work in progress. I think that it's easy to take a medication and get, you know, 70 to 80 percent better. It's the real the real hard work comes in when you are really having to put the time and effort in to learn how to plan, to learn how to break down those, you know, tasks, to learn how to prioritize, to manage your time. And also remember that not everyone is going to have the same issues. So it depends. Like someone like you, for example, let's just say that you had a diagnosis of ADHD doesn't necessarily mean that just because you're good with time that you don't have ADHD. This is Hope to Recharge. I'm Atana. I'm here to guide you and support you through your challenging times navigating through depression, anxiety, and other mental health struggles. This episode is sponsored by our incredible sponsor from the beginning, BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. Many people come to me for help. And one of my questions are, have you been to therapy? Are you willing to go to therapy? I am not a therapist. I don't claim to be a therapist and I don't do the therapist work. And I think it's something that has to be done with a therapist side by side. Some people have been to therapy for many years and then they come to me to do the work. I often say if you haven't been to therapy and if you want to start working with me, you need to start working with a therapist as well. Very often, it is very expensive. BetterHelp is a leading online platform for therapy that is affordable. You don't have to leave your house. You can get it from the comfort of your sofa, your bed, your office. It's one click away. There are thousands of licensed clinicians on this platform. It's incredible. If you want to get 10% send off your first month, use the link in the show notes, betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Use the link below and start your therapy from the comfort of your home. Sometimes it's so overwhelming to go to therapy. Nowadays, most therapists are on Zoom. Most clinicians are on Zoom. Let's say you travel a lot. Let's say you just don't like getting out of your house, but you want a therapist. It's so affordable. It's worth taking a look. If you're thinking about therapy and you don't know where to start, go to betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. That's betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Millions of people from all over the world are using them. Start your wellness now. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me here today. Today, I'm with Dr. Dara, Dr. Dara Abrams. I'm really excited because I'm going to learn about myself today. I was just talking to Dr. Dara right before we started recording, and I said, I'm here as a student. I'm going to find out all about ADHD for adults and what what is ADHD for adults? Is it different than than youth ADHD? Is it diagnosed differently? Is it, does it play out differently. I feel, I was talking talking to Dr. Darren, I told her that I think that I was never diagnosed with ADHD and I always thought that I might have it. And we already have a running joke in our family. Oh, it's mommy's ADHD without me going to a psychiatrist to be diagnosed by it. But just because I deal with so many people and so many people from the world that it's a buzzword already. And I'm wondering, do we misuse it do we label? What does it mean? And I want to hear from Dr. Dara. She has her personal story about how she 
decided to really have a niche in the adult ADHD in terms of her whole psychiatry practice and why she decided to specifically treat adults that are ADHD and not everything else. So thank you for joining me here, Dr. Odara. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and I love the enthusiasm on adult ADHD. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about yourself. So I am a psychiatrist. I was, you know, trained and I studied psychiatry and medicine and all of that before I was diagnosed with ADHD. I always, you know, knew something was a little off, but really it was just kind of, I was a baby of the 80s and I was chatty, you know, I specifically, I can went to Hebrew school and I remember I ended up going on to do the confirmation after my bar mitzvah and I literally got kicked out of Hebrew high for excessive talking. And I mean, they liked me. I was well-liked, but I just didn't. I was just so chatty that they had asked my parents for me not to come back. I mean, that's an embarrassing story. I think it's the first time I've ever admitted that out loud, but it, you know, it kind of went way back. And, you know, thankfully, I really did not have much issues besides Hebrew High, which I was, you know, I was ready to continue my studies elsewhere. But either way, I, um, I just always had difficulty with staying focused in class. I remember coming up with different tactics and nothing really worked. So I remember since maybe a young age, even elementary later in grade school and then definitely middle and high school, I would be doing extra work at night. I I remember pulling all-nighters when I was in high school. I mean, literally learning, re, not even relearning the material, but learning the material for the first time due to the fact that I was excessively daydreaming or talking during a class. And there were many times where I was quite interested in the information. I'm quite interested in the movie I was watching, but would just kind of lose focus. And, uh, you know, it affected all areas of my life, but I always got by because I was anxious and I had a lot of structure and I had parents who really cared about education and I was people pleaser and I wanted to do well and I wanted to be, and I wanted to feel validated. And in my family, you know, you were validated for your accomplishments, especially academics. So, you know, and I, so I did really well. I mean, I did well enough that I think I had, I never had you know, I don't think I had anything but a B plus, one B plus all throughout high school. And I'm not trying to, you know, um, boast, but it's just so interesting that I got to college and I was pre-med and I floundered. I mean, to the point where I, I think I, you know, there's an organic chemistry class in pre-med and I almost failed it and it was just a mess. And so I really, really debated going to continue with pre-med and to the point where I actually did not take my big exam before when I was undergrad and I decided, told my parents I was no longer going to pursue the field of medicine. And I went off abroad to London instead of staying back like every pre-med student their junior year of college. And I decided I was just not going to do it anymore. And I just didn't feel good enough. It felt like I had to work so much harder. Of course, you know, things you know, fast forward five to six years, graduated, realized I didn't, I was floundering. I think I was bartending, waitressing, working in a psych hospital as a volunteer. And I finally put my all into it. And to study for this big exam, I, it took me weeks, months, uh, 
just so much effort, so much. And so when I finally got to medical school, I thought it was, you know, I could relax and, you know, breathe. And now it, you know, at that point, I think I'd already seen someone, a psychiatrist who had briefly, and this was due to anxiety, especially test anxiety. And that was the first time that it was mentioned to me. And, you know, if anyone in my family had ADHD and I said no one's formally diagnosed and make the long story short, I completely brushed it off. And then it wasn't until after, you know, I struggled throughout medical school, I got by, you don't have to be, you know, even the last one in, that graduates, still the doctor. And then I went on to residency and it wasn't until the end of residency where I finally reached out again and saw someone who specialized in the field of, of ADHD, child and adult ADHD. And I finally recognized that it was a real thing. And so it's it, just a normalization, just the idea that this is not a character flaw, that this is just not my quirks, that this is not that I'm just flaky or forgetful or absent-minded. You know, my parents used to, you know, kind of joke like, you know, the whole medically blonde and as much as I could take it, you know, my skin was thick at that point. It kind of got tiring that you started to believe that you weren't good enough. And I think just the diagnosis in itself allowed me to acknowledge that this was, you know, it, my brain chemistry was different. You know, I, it wasn't a choice. It wasn't voluntary. I know before we were on air, you were mentioning how, you know, there's times when you can pay attention and sit back and not interrupt. And that's the thing, it, you know, it really, it's hard to convince someone that it's a real neurological, well, neurodevelopmental disorder when it's so inconsistent, when the sim symptoms show up when, you know, when you're not interested, when you're not passionate, when you're not, when something's not urgent, that's when, when something is mundane and repetitive, that's when you're going to see it. And so it can come off as being really inconsistent. And that's why I didn't believe it. That's why many folks don't believe it. I didn't believe I, I was like, how could I be? How could I have ADHD if I got through medical school? It just couldn't be. So how did you get through it? Medical school is brutal. I was just so anxious. I'll never forget. I was in, um, true story. I was in, um, anatomy. And I mean, I remember some of the, you know, teachers, professors, you know, who were physicians themselves were just so freaked out about how nervous I was during the oral exam and gross anatomy. And they would tell me, they'd be like, I think you need to take a shot. I was like a shot of what? Of liquor before you come in here to take this exam. Cause I would wander because when you're so you know, AD anxious due to the fact that you can't recall things that you would learn because ADHD is not just a disorder of attention and focus, but also a disorder of, you know, executive dysfunctions. And so the ability to organize, plan, to prioritize, all of that is so important in an oral exam, especially a gross anatomy oral exam. And then also working memory, which I think is the number, well, probably up there in the top two to three things that adults with ADHD struggle with. And that's the part of our short-term memory that allows us to basically hold on to information and manipulate, manipulate it while we're doing something else. So in order to take an exam, I have to use that part of my short-term memory to kind of take it out. And then I have to use it to answer a question. And so if you think about it, many things we do, you know, when someone gives you directions, you're using your working memory. When you put something down and then you leave a room to remote you using your working memory, all of that. 
Is that why I forget all the time where my keys are? You know, the other day I walked into the wrong car and I didn't realize until I freaked out that my pocketbook wasn't there and I realized I was in the wrong car. And it's because I was so unautomatic. I wasn't I wasn't noticing detail. But at the same time, I'm hyper, hyper sensitive because I have sensory and I'm a highly sensitive person. So I, I, I feel certain things that other people don't tap into, like sound, like noise, like energy. I'll pick up on it. But in the meantime, I walk into this. I, I, I literally went into the wrong car or I'm, I'm looking all, I'm looking for my phone and it's in my hand and I'm freaking out. Where's my phone or where's my, where's, where did I just put my coffee? And it's in my hand. Always, always sunglasses on the head. Right. So what is it? So what happens to the brain that it doesn't happen to somebody that doesn't have ADHD? What happens to our brain? So it does, it does happen to people that don't have ADHD. And that was, and that's a great question. And to answer it, really ADHD is not psychopathology in the way that anxiety is, or that, you know, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia it's, and that's why it's really considered a neurodevelopmental disorder, meaning that we all, every human has symptoms of ADHD. And that's just the way that the brain develops. What happens with someone, an adult or a child, is that there's delays in the development. And that affects the ability to focus, to, you know, organize, to, you know, level of self-regulation, discipline, and all this good stuff. But when you, so if you have one or two symptoms, two to three symptoms, maybe, you know, three to four, you don't necessarily have a disorder. You just have symptoms, traits of ADHD, right. just like everyone else. Right. And that is why a lot of people say, well, doesn't everyone have it? Well, yes, they do have symptoms, but they don't have a constellation of symptoms that turn into basically forgetfulness, difficulty with prioritizing, chronic lateness, emotional dysregulation, hyperfocus, inattentiveness, um, all of that affecting them daily and at work and at home and in their relationships. That's when you think of it as a disorder. So not only do you have to have these symptoms, but they have to affect your overall functioning. If someone comes to me and says, I don't know, I mean, I, I have this quite often, you know, um, my you know, attending a, a medical student will say, you know, they want me to do this and that. It doesn't bother me, but it's, they're really annoyed by it. And it, you know, it works out great in my own life and being forgetful or, you know, it's not something I'm really phased by. I plan on going into a field of medicine that, you know, that will allow me to have more time to think things through and look things over. You know, if it's not really affecting someone in multiple domains, I don't really necessarily treat it, especially with medications, the first line treatment, we may work on some other things in terms of second and third line treatment. Mm. So is is adult ADHD the same thing as child ADHD? It's just diagnosed later in life? It's a great question. And so unfortunately, it's it it really should be considered something different. We, America, United States does not have guidelines yet. They're actually coming out this year by the by APSARD, which is a national organization for adult ADHD. And they are working on this that has it's been in the works for a while now, for you know, over a year or two or longer. And every other, you know, Europe has 
ADHD adult guidelines for diagnosing and prescribing, and so does Canada. And why we need it so much is that it really does present differently. And due to the fact that children and adolescents really present with the core symptoms of ADHD, so the what you think of as the inattentive, the difficulty with focus, attention, hyperactive, impulsive symptoms, which is like the, you know, fidgety, not sitting still. And adults have those issues, but they also have something called executive dysfunctions. And that's usually why they present. And we don't really see that with children as much until they're already diagnosed, until maybe high school, middle school, where they're struggling with prioritization, planning, really self, um, self-regulation, initiating, completing tasks, knowing how to plan out tasks, knowing how to organize their thoughts. And so all of this really is why it's so necessary to think of it as almost a different disorder. But but to be quite honest, every adult has different symptoms. You know, the old saying is, you know, when you meet one person with ADHD, especially adult ADHD, you've just met that one person. Mm. So are they treated the same? They are treated the same. The first so the first line treatment for anyone above the age of six is stimulants. They are the most effective, they are the most effective treatment in all of, probably in all of psychiatry, they're the most effective medication we have in terms of effect size. When we, when we look at medicines for any disease, we look at the effect size and the medications like stimulants, you know, anything around above one or 0.8 to one is great. I think, and I may misquote myself here, but I am almost, stimulants are around 1.6, which is outstanding. And then because of that, you know, because the stimulants are controlled substances, not everyone wants to start them right away. I will say that, yes, there are other treatments, but without the stimulants, you're, it's basically, you know, you're not giving yourself the biggest tool, which is the the missing chemical, and that's called dopamine. So, you know, a lot of folks are resistant, you know, a lot of physicians are resistant, Due to the fact that they're controlled substances, but all of the studies have shown that, you know, all the risks of untreated ADHD outweigh, or you know, really the the benefit of the medications outweighs any of those risks. Yeah. So tell me what goes on in my brain when I'm all over the place. I'll tell I'll tell give you an example of today. Today, one of the things that I realized in the last twenty years of my life, shopping is literally sucks my chi. I come home drained, anxiety to the roof. I sometimes feel dizzy. I need to unwind for like an hour or two. I just don't go into stores. That's why when Instacart started a few years ago, I was their number one. (laughs) I was happy to pay them. Just avoid stores for me. Now I shop on Amazon. I shop online. My daughters needed something because we were traveling and they're like, okay, mommy, you got to take us. And I'm like, okay, I got to do this. I'm going to brace myself. And I like, I was doing my breathing and I I said, okay, we're going to do it only this amount of time. I came home. I literally needed to lock myself in my room for an hour to unwind from it because I just felt sometimes that the, the, the store was spinning. What is that? Yeah. So that is just sensory overload. And that is really... So much stimuli. I mean, if you think about it in a store, when you're out with your children, you have auditory distraction, you have other conversations, you have all this visual distraction, you have emotional distraction of like just the 
angst that it took to get into that store and then you know what do the kids want to buy and then what what's this mean and when are you going to just have time to be by yourself the night is kind of slow the the day is going to be over soon so all of that emotional distraction visual auditory everything just leads to just feeling you know bombarded and almost paralyzed and you know for some people that don't have ADHD and even folks that some do but most that do feel the same way as you, you know, most people, some people, people feel recharged by time, by doing things like that, where someone like you actually feels completely depleted, where that took out took so much energy just to get that done. And so really it's just that hyper, you know, feeling hyper stimulated, stimulated and just feeling like there's just so much going on. I think that it also is hard to be in those situations without having a specific plan, without having it be completely organized. But at the same time, the ADHD brain doesn't really want to plan, unless at least plan for something like that and kind of have it that's boring and kind of mundane. That's so true. Because I'm a go with the flow. Let's work it out. Let's figure it out. And maybe we can end it earlier, but it doesn't. It's always yeah. later. And I did find myself halfway through. I said 20 minutes more and then I'm gone. No matter what, I'm out. You reached your limit. And I said, I'm out. 20 minutes. I don't care what we're, we're out. Done. So do I have something like, again, I self-diagnosed myself and my children diagnosed me with ADHD, but I definitely have the symptoms. I have, maybe I have the traits. The question is, is it something really in my brain that's not releasing, you said dopamine? Yeah. So there's different areas of the brain and that's why everyone looks different where there's different areas of the brain that need a chemical, a neurotransmitter called dopamine. And there's also different wiring. And so someone with ADHD can have less dopamine in certain areas. And most of it is in the prefrontal cortex. So that's the part of the brain. That's the higher functioning aspect of our brain. That's the, that's where we really, that's not where we really learn like um, factual information, you know, who's the president of the United States. That's not where we store that. That's, so that's really what allows us to do goal-oriented behavior, to, you know, to have patience, to have the ability to regulate our time, to regulate our emotions, to regulate our thoughts, to, you know, something called response inhibition, to be able to move on to the next thing without, you know, just hyper-focusing on the thing that you were doing to allow yourself, you know, the ability to really to force yourself to do something without external, without needing external motivation, without needing that, you know, that body double, that person to help you, all that stuff that really is just hard without needing, you know, that or that deadline, that sense of urgency. And so really what it is, it's just different areas of the brain not and also areas of the brain that you wouldn't even think about, such as alertness. You know, we need dopamine to to know when it's time to wake up, and we also need it to know when it's time for it to kind of be less elevated when it's time to go to sleep. And so, a lot of people have this uh, circadian rhythm dysfunction, and that's just a sleep wake cycle that's disturbed. Eighty percent of adults with ADHD actually have some sort of sleep disorder, whether it's insomnia, restless leg narcolepsy, things like that. And so there is, you know, really different areas of the brain. Some of it is also reward, you know, the reward pathway revolves around dopamine. So that's why a lot of times when the ADHD is not treated, you can have a lot of secondary disorders from it, such as substance abuse, you know, alcohol use, 
Also, eating disorders, binge eating disorder is a big one, you know, that something has to fill that reward pathway. And if it's not the dopamine, the natural dopamine that you're deficient in and you're not repleting it with medication or, or, you know, exercise, but there's only so much natural dopamine that can come from cardiovascular exercise, even though that is great, you know, so really it's going to be something and then food gets replaced and food is used. So all of that, you know, I always say, God, I like see someone and they come to me after years of having depression and social anxiety and eating disorder and, and, you know, finally sober. And, you know, if only that ADHD was picked up when they were younger, really, maybe they would have still struggled, but a lot of times they may not have. Wow. You want to hear something interesting about the food? So I started intermittent fasting just because I love, I love food. I'm not overweight. But I'm not at the weight that I was 20 years ago. And I I would I said, you know what? I want to be more mindful with my food because my food is I love cooking. I love everything that has to do with the smells, the the preparation, the family bonding, the giving of the food. The I just love, love, love it. Uh, so I said I'm gonna start intermittent fasting because I'll be I want to be more mindful because I realized that my days were so packed with work that I was eating nothing in the morning until right before I had to pick up my children. And then I just ate six cookies, you know, and I, and after a very overwhelming day with clients or whatever, I'm like, okay, I need that rush. And it would always be cookies. So I said, I want to be mindful where if I'll do the intermittent fasting, I'm going to be fasting, then I'll have a very mindful breakfast and it's, I will need it. I'm going to need it because it's just not going to be like a coffee. And then I'm going to run. I'll sit down because I know that I didn't have it for so long. And then I have to stop eating by dinner by six o'clock. And I'm very mindful about it. Today, I, I and I was, I'm doing this for a month or so, a month and a half, and I'm really good at it. I'm so proud of myself, really so proud of myself. Today, when I went shopping, I came back. I walked in the door. I washed my hands. My coat was still on. And I grabbed two chocolate chip cookies. I haven't had chocolate chip cookies in so long. And I just grabbed it. And I, as I'm eating it, I said to my husband, you see, Ari, look what I grabbed without even, it was not, it was automatic. I just went to the cookie jar right after I washed my hands and I smelled my delicious soap on my hands because I needed the cleanse. I needed that cleanse from being out in the shopping. And I just like took two cookies, not one. And I'm like, look, Ari, oh my God, this is literally my relaxant, this chocolate chip cookie. And now I understand what it was. Yeah, you needed that fix. You needed that dopamine surge. And, you know, every time that you're, you know, someone's kind of like flipping through social media on Instagram, TikTok, for example, it's just one dopamine surge after another, after another, you know, putting stuff in their shopping cart, you know, online, that really fuels it. Um, You know, so all of these things, some are a little bit healthier than others, you know, But some of them, you know, definitely get out of hand when there's just not enough dopamine, when there's just not enough regulation. Right. So I know from a lot of clients or from friends or just from the industry, from learning about mental health for so long, that Adderall is one of the biggest like go to. Right. And people swear by it. They said, oh, my God, it was the first time is like me being blind. And then I put glasses on. Exactly. And I was able to focus. And oh, my gosh. But the side effects are also very hard with these these medications. 
So how do you know if the trade-off is worth it? Like I never tried medication. First of all, I was never diagnosed. I never did the proper like testing and I really should be tested, right? And see, um, but I'm I, like, it took me so long to get off of my anxiety and depression medication after a few years of being out of it. And I felt like I got my brain back, but is it worth really the struggle? Yeah. So, I mean, I want to give credit to the guru of adult ADHD. His name is William Dobson. And, you know, I think that I have just listened to everything that he's like put out there. He actually sent me all of his um, great ADHD like worksheets and all these different little like um, hacks for patients. He's been, but he was, he was the one who coined rejection sensitivity dysphoria for adult ADHD. I mean, he's, so anyways, he's the guru. And basically his whole, you know, thought process is that most docs or most prescribers, usually what happens is they're overdosing. Like initially their patients are just getting too high of doses, especially adults. And then later on, what happens is once they're, once their body acclimates to the stimulants like Adderall, we're not, they're not optimizing the doses. So overdosing initially and underdosing long-term. And so really what I like to do is start so small, like almost like just micro doses of stimulants, Adderall, Vyvanse, Ritalin, whatever it may be, and really go so slow that it's almost subtherapeutic, meaning not even effective, not noticing it, just to get your body used to it. Just in case you have, you know, the biggest side effects, the biggest things are increased, um, anxiety, also decreased appetite, trouble sleeping. So those three things, if we can minimize those to the point where you can still function and you're not going to stop it prematurely, then I think I, you know, we can definitely go slowly. And then once we, I would say everyone's different. There's some folks who need, you know, a couple months, some need a week, some need a couple days. There's others who tell me it's been like two, three years. And they're finally like, wow, I finally don't feel like I had 10, you know, cups of Starbucks after I took my medication this morning, meaning everyone's system acclimates at a different time. I will say that, you know, just like most anxiety disorders or depression or mood disorders, things don't exist in a vacuum. And so usually it's my folks who have comorbid anxiety who have trouble really getting used to the medication. And But once I treat, you know, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or, you know, some other type of therapy or mindfulness, once we really kind of take a look at the anxiety too, I have a much better, the patients have a much better reaction to the medications and can really tolerate the side effects and they do subside. So, and it's something that you can say, you know what, on the weekend, I don't have to really focus. I could chill so I don't have to take it, right? Yes. If you choose to, it doesn't, it's not mandatory. That was an old myth that you needed to take breaks or else you would build up tolerance and dependence. So that is not a mandatory, but you definitely can choose when you take it. So let's say I have a project and I need to focus. Like I'm, I, I'm a huge procrastinator, like massive. Is that part of ADHD? That's all part of it. Yeah. So, so let's say I have a deadline to something you would say, make sure to take your medication until you finish your project to get it done. This way, you're not going to struggle with it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, the med- if the right medication, you could take all the time and it would just feel like you're not necessarily on a medication, but you actually just feel normal. But yes, you can, if, the med- if you only want to use it for a project or for certain times when you have real, you know, urgent deadlines and you just have waited too long and it's hard to sustain focus 
even if it's something interesting, but usually something pretty boring, then yes, you can definitely utilize the medication. The good news is that, you know, the medication's in your system and then it's out of your system by the end of the day or the night, depending on what type of formulation you use. So it's so you're saying it's not addictive and it's not the more you take them higher, you're going to need to increase your dose within no. life. So let's say you're on it for 20 years. Most people stay on the same dose. The initial dose is going to change because remember, we're going to start low. So, you know, it may take, you know, three, two, three, four different doses over a period of a couple months, a couple weeks, a couple years to get up to that optimal dose. So, but once you're there, you're there. It just depends how quickly we can get you there. And so, you know, someone who has true ADHD is not going to get addicted to the medication. Everyone who takes the medication, the brain becomes dependent because just like any drug that you take and then is out of your system at night, you you become dependent, just like caffeine. You know, there are people who can feel like they have a headache and feel really sluggish when they don't have their caffeine. So if someone had to stop stimulants and they were taking it every day for 20 years, they may feel tired and lethargic and hungrier for a couple of days to a week. And then they'll go back to their baseline. That new baseline subjectively may feel different than it did maybe 20 years before that because they now know what it's like to have a normal level of the chemical that's been missing. So it's not a benzos or it is? No, I mean, it's it's not. No, it's it is. The only similarity is that when you take a benzo, it's in your system and then it's out. So you feel them both, but they're completely different drugs. Unfortunately, benzo dependence and withdrawal is much is not it's not safely to just stop abruptly stop benzos. Um, with ADHD, yes, you can feel with stimulants, you can feel a little tired and hungry, but there's no harm um, as long as, you know, the goal is basically to do it slowly over time if if someone, you know, chooses to go off the medication due to pregnancy or some other reason. Um, but usually, but most people who have real ADHD and take the medication are not going to feel good if they take too high of a dose. They're actually going to feel sick. They're going to feel either like a zombie, because it's going to slow down their impulsive and hyperactive symptoms, or they're going to feel like they had 10 cups of Starbucks cappuccino and they're going to feel like it's just really just not feeling right and usually usually folks who are really using it to get high you know it those folks are very very rare it's even the college students that abuse it are usually using it because number one they have undiagnosed ADHD and they don't realize it and number two we live in this very you know performance-driven society where, you know, they're trying to get, you know, one up and trying to get ahead. But the studies have shown that when you take these medications and you don't have ADHD, it's not going to improve your performance. It's it's not going to do what you're hoping for. Right, right, right. It works only if you have the disorder. If you're If you have deficiency, just like if you take more vitamin C, you're going to pee it out. You're not going to be able, yeah. Mm, it's so fascinating. Yeah. Tell me about what your belief is in general. So first of all, before I ask this next question, adult is from 18? Yeah. So adult, and we think of it as 18. I also, so yes. And then adolescent, 14 to 18, adult, 18. Okay. So I would say if I was a parent to an ADHD child that was, that they call me and like, oh, your son is not, your child, your child is not 
listening or he's distracted, he's bouncing all over the place, let's medicate him. My first reaction would probably be, I'd rather not. Like I'd rather, I'd rather him be a healthy child. Let him run around, let him bounce up and down, let him, let him not sit, but I'd rather not medicate him unless, unless he's falling really behind. What, what are your thoughts about that? So I guess, it you know, what does falling behind mean? Does falling behind mean just academically? Or what's what about what's going on with his peers? Is he connecting with his peers well? Is he connecting with, you know, his teachers? How's he doing at home? How's he doing with his siblings? Is any of that affected? How's he doing out on the, you know, the sports field? How's he doing, you know, if he's, you know, learning lines for his theater program. So all of that matters. I'd want to really know all aspects of, you know, what's going on. We we think of ADHD as just affecting two areas of someone's life, which is work and school. And unfortunately, ADHD does not stop after a day's work or after, you know, the classes are done for the day, but it affects so many things, especially for women. It affects their self-esteem, their confidence, you know, their body image, all of that. So I'd really want to know, is this really just affecting them in this few classes? And are they doing well overall? Could they just work on some mindfulness and some just behavioral skills? Maybe, you know, eventually, most likely they may need some type of intervention. But, you know, so it really just depends. Mm. That answer your question? Yeah, 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 yeah. That I, I like that. I like that it's not one size fit all and that you have to analyze each individual case to see what what are their challenges and what do they want to accomplish by it and how how can you get there yeah there's so many hidden symptoms and hidden like things like especially the higher function functioning adolescent or child the one who's really super smart i'm sensitive to this you know smart and anxious you know what what is missing here is by compensating for the deficiencies Something has to give. And it's somewhat maybe their time that they spend, you know, kind of secret studying and preparing, over preparing, or their self-esteem. Hmm. I've heard lately, I wouldn't say in the last year and a half, ever since COVID, I want to say maybe even, yeah, a lot of people are mentioning that they were on medication and it stopped working for them. Yeah, so I definitely do. I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. I think one of them just to start off with is that, you know, there's things that can make stimulants, not if we're talking about stimulants, which are usually the medication to go to, there are, are things that can make them not effective, such as, you know, anything with, you know, vitamin C. So if someone just all of a sudden starts drinking a lot of soda, and they were drinking, you know, usually water before, and they're drinking that soda an hour before, an hour after they take their medication, they're, the medication is basically going to be urinated out before they have a chip before it has a chance to start working, and that's not really well known. So basically, any if they take their morning Adderall with a multivitamin, which has vitamin C, it's may, not going to be as effective. They may not even feel it. Also, you know, something that's not as well known and probably is controversial is the different generic manufacturers. There are, you know, different manufacturers of generic Adderall. There is a level of FDA and what the DEA regulates in terms of the equivalents, but they're not completely identical. They're bioequivalent, so they're not identical. So there are times, usually it's the folks who are kind of erring on the side of 
you know, needing a higher dose than maybe they're already on or super sensitive to any dose above what they're on. So either end of the spectrum with a change in their generic manufacturer, they may notice either it's not effective anymore or it's just too stimulating, too many side effects. Could it be also antidepressants, different antidepressants that they're taking or different mental health medications that they're taking as a combination cocktail for other disorders um, that can affect. So let's say there was a change in their depression medication or there was a, or, or can that be someone bipolar yeah. there? They, they taking different medication. It was changed for some reason and their Adderall is not working or whatever they're taking. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's usually um, when we, when someone starts on a medication for depression, it may help also some underlying anxiety. And so when you're helping the anxiety and the mood, you may realize that you're better able to tolerate uh, an effective dose of the stimulant, meaning you're more stable. And at that point, you realize that, wow, the stimulant, the dose that I thought was effective is not as effective now that my anxiety is stabilized. So I think that's when it will really change. Or you can notice that you know, the SSRI like Prozac or Lexapro is actually doling, making the person a little too flat and maybe they need to lower it. And because of that flattening or that emotional numbness, they don't really notice that or all as much. Hmm. I think that's, that's really fascinating. Is there any way to scan a brain before and after Adderall, like within a half an hour to see if it's doing its job? Is there any way to know what's going on in the brain? There have been some functional PET scans done, but I don't think, you know, it's not the the research is there for the research, but it hasn't reached the level of everyday use of, you know, kind of that'd be pretty neat to be able to see like exactly where the dopamine is going and where the deficiencies are. We do know that, you know, in a functional, you know, PET scan that areas do light up that are deficient. But at this point, you know, especially with the expense, insurance companies are not paying for that. What are we doing for ourselves? What do we want to be? What do we want to work on? What's important to us? How can we cultivate these small changes in our brain, in our day-to-day life with our own tools? I call working with me the VIP program because I handhold you through the process. And sometimes the process is very lonely and hard and frustrating. And you want to just make sure you get it right to guide you through it with somebody that went through it. Sometimes you need a therapist, a psychiatrist, a coach, and somebody like me, somebody that went through the same thing, the same challenge as I did. And I love working with people that are ready to do the work because it is expensive. It's a lifelong investment into yourself, into your future. When you start working with a therapist, with a coach, or with someone like me, you're investing into your long-term stability, into your long-term mental health. People often ask me, can I work with you? How many times? What does it look like? And I say, it's not about how many times. What are you willing to do to show up, to work on yourself, to make the changes? How ready are you? Because if you're not ready, the investment will go south. You could say, I don't know where I want to go. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't even believe it can, but I'm no longer willing to stay in this position where I am now. Choose yourself. What are you willing to do to bring awareness to yourself, to your mental health, to your stability, to change? How are you going to impact yourself that you will impact the world? If you want to work one-on-one with me, link is in the show notes. Happy to answer any questions that you have. One-on-one with Matana. Schedule a free 30-minute consultation that we can see if you are ready. Be ready for change. Be ready to work hard. Be ready to see a different you. So let's go back a little bit. 
how does one get that? If somebody's saying, you know what, I'm listening to Matana now and she sounds like she has a lot of traits like I do. I wonder if I'm ADHD. What would be the first thing that you would tell them? How, do, how does one get diagnosed, tested, or get direction of like they're afraid of medication, they don't really want it, but they first want to see what the, to, to rule it out or to not rule it out, to say to get diagnosed and say, yes, you have ADHD. And these these are going to be your challenges and and these are real things and it's not that you're clumsy and it's not that you're spacey and 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 it's it's not your fault yeah yeah so i think that number one i mean really you know you can start off if you are able and you already are working with a psychiatrist that's great or a psychologist then you can definitely start there and you know reach out to them if someone is dismissive you can always you know get another opinion um, the, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of physicians, including psychiatrists, are just not well trained on the topic of adult ADHD. It really just became a thing in the past 15 years or so. It wasn't even necessarily part of our diagnostic statistical manual, the DSM. So, you know, I wouldn't be hesitant to reach out for extra care if someone is dismissing a lot of your symptoms. The other thing you can do is talk to your primary care physician. You can, you know, really reach out to them. A lot of them are comfortable with at least starting the medication since it could be a long wait to get you in to see a psychiatrist. And then it's not necessary, but if you feel like, you know, especially if someone maybe is 17, 18, and they're noticing that they always had trouble with, you know, certain aspects of school, then you can get a neuropsych eval, which is a battery of neurological, neuropsychological tests that really will determine if there's anything else going on in terms of like any learning disorders or developmental delays or like dyslexia, things like that. It's not as necessary for an adult since usually the same treatment, you know, it's nice to know if there was something else going on, like a central processing disorder, but, the, but usually just, you know, the ADHD treatment is going to be sufficient. And though that can cost you, you know, upwards to, you know, a couple, a couple grand for that type of test. So I think really number one would be going to a psychiatrist, an adult or child and adolescent psychiatrist, since they know a lot about ADHD and really see, and hopefully someone who specializes in the field and, you know, or speaking with your primary care physician who can possibly, if they're comfortable, start you on a medication or at least suggest maybe some therapists or coaches that if you choose not to go down the medication route. So you're saying that you don't need a neuropsych eval in order to go on medication. Like, you, wouldn't you want a neuropsych eval before you go on medication to really rule it out? So it's not, it is not a diagnosis that is based on a neuropsych exam. It's a clinical diagnosis. So it's all based on really learning about, you know, someone's history. And it's not an easy diagnosis. I mean, it diagnosis, it definitely takes, I would say most of my assessments are two hours and they include when necessary, talking to the family members, right. talking to, you know, the therapist, the coach, also them kind of preparing, getting together any of their, you know, I've had people bring me their, show me their report cards from when they were younger that talk about how chatty they were or how disruptive they are. So it's really putting all those pieces together. Unfortunately, it's really thought of that these neuropsych exams are their end-all be-all. They're not, they're not the diagnostic test, especially in they're adults. They're not. No, they're really, wow. that's just giving you a snapshot of what's going on in that moment. Meaning someone who's anxious, 
like a female who's anxious, who is really used to working well under pressure, they could actually compensate for their deficiencies depending on what neuropsych test, what test they're giving. There's thousands of different tests that you can get. And it just depends on what that psychologist has. I'm not dismissing them. They're still great. They're still useful. I would love to have one and, you know, every year of my own self to know exactly how where you're holding. Yeah. Yes. Like in terms of like, I think where they're useful is kind of, you know, not the diagnosis, but figuring out where are my deficits and where, like where if you keep doing them, even they're too expensive to do it this way, but then you can really see the progress because that snapshot becomes more you know, it's a little more obvious that it's an issue when every time you do something that tests, you notice that it's the working memory or the concentration or the processing that's off. Hmm. So a psychiatrist basically is what it, but don't you feel like a lot of psychiatrists and I'm not, I'm not here, here to, my, my psychiatrist saved my life 13 years ago, saved my life. But before he came around, I went to somebody that was awful yeah. For my depression, my anxiety, he put me on some, he's listened to my story for maybe 20 minutes, said, take, I think it was Prozac. It just said, call me in a week. I was suicidal two nights later, which I wow. was never before. Wow. So they're so quick to say, and just say, take this. You want to go somebody that really is not just quickly labeling you something and giving you a quick prescription totally and big pharma is so easy to get you addicted to something to make you feel better for long term how do we protect ourselves from going to the right clinicians and they really care about our long-term stability not just about feeding big pharma and doing a quick fix to our brain yeah no that's a great question and unfortunately i don't you know i i think that it's really doing a lot of like self-advocating for yourself your family member really looking for experts in the field i would suggest even going to the chad website which is a website that really is great for children adolescents and adults with adhd as well as something called attitude and you can find different resources you can find experts in the field even psychology today, where you can even find people who specialize. There's also APSARD, which is an organization with all physicians, prescribers, you know, whoever it is, I don't care if it's a nurse practitioner, a PA, physician assistant, psychiatrist, pediatrician, they really need to know the ins and outs. And, you know, there are also so many nuances that comes with prescribing these meds and diagnosing it's very rare that my assessments last or, you know, truly 90 minutes, I would say most of them end up being closer to two to three hours. And so, you know, by the end, I think the patient client is, you know, kind of ready to just end. They don't want to talk anymore. They are spent. My last question is always, is there anything that I don't know about you at this point? And I mean, it's, yeah. So I think that that gives me a real good understanding of where they are. There are times when I'm not entirely sure if it's, if, you know, what to treat first. Should we treat the ADHD or the bipolar depression? You know, in that case, usually it's a, it really, usually it is the mood disorder, but there's many times when we have to see what they're left with once we treat the ADHD to see how much anxiety they have left. And so it really is really working closely with someone. I think that if a prescriber just hands you a script of Adderall and then tells you they'll see you in a month, that's not going to be very useful. Usually I have to check in with the patients every couple of days for the first couple of weeks. 
And, you know, I would say maybe two to three times during that first month before we they come back for a visit. So ADHD became a thing when? When did it become a diagnosis? What, what adults. year? And anyone, like when did we, when, when, when did somebody find out that ADHD, is it 80s, is it 70s, is it the 60s, is it, is it the beginning of the 1900s? When, when was it, like, when did so, they? Yeah, so, so basically there, it was called many other things. It was not, you know, not until later in life was it in, oh God, maybe like 70s, 80s. I can't remember exactly when it really became ADD and then eventually became ADHD but they had there was a lot of derogatory names for what was going on in the brain and you know it was really just thought of as little boys and the biggest thing the biggest difference was that you were going to outgrow it it wasn't until like the past 15 years that we finally understand and it's not even well known that 75% of children do not 75 to up to upwards to 80% do not outgrow ADHD some people do outgrow it? Some, but I would say How? that most, so most of them really, it's not outgrowing. It's just they, their they symptoms may, yeah, their symptoms were mild to begin with. And they've, you know, they were able to utilize some different strategies to, you know, sometimes change the neural pathways because you can do that, but they most likely, you know, still have some symptoms. They're just not affecting their traits now. They're not affecting their overall functioning. But um, so it's been around. I mean, these medications, stimulants, Ritalin, Adderall have been around for almost 100 years. I mean, this has been this is a thing that has been there. It wasn't acknowledged as a disorder. But I would say that, you know, there are at least 80 million people out there walking around undiagnosed with ADHD, having no idea, thinking they just have depression and anxiety or OCD or social anxiety or just, you know, there's. I think upwards up to 40 or 45% of um, inmates in prisons with a, with untreated, undiagnosed ADHD. So do you think that, is it most humans have ADHD? Do you think you could say 50%, more than 50% have ADHD? No, no, no. So the, it's a, the percentage of the actual, per, like the prevalence is probably in adults, I would say 5%. Five percent, and so wait—that's undiagnosed, or that are diagnosed, or no, in general, five percent have ADHD, but eighty percent, eighty percent of those don't know. So you say so? There's almost eight billion people, or maybe eight billion, eight billion people in the world. Five percent of them have ADHD, exactly. But eighty percent of the five percent are not diagnosed, exactly. Wow, exactly. wow. Okay, okay. Which is still huge. And do you think with more awareness, more people are like willing to get diagnosed and get treated? Yes, I do. And I think there's just, you know, there's been a stigma. I think there is. I don't see it as a stigma. You say, I was just going to ask you, I don't feel like there's shame to it at all. To depression, anxiety, bipolar, all uh, borderline, there's huge, huge stigma. ADHD is something that no one's embarrassed of. I, I shouldn't say no one. I don't see it as a as something that you should be embarrassed of, like, or stigma or shame. 
Yeah, I think when it's used the way in kind of just the everyday languages, I have, you know, that's my ADHD or, you know, kind of the way we we say that's my OCD, then it's a little bit different. But when we take a look and really see how, you know, if someone comes in and they're, you know, some, you know, highly successful CEO of some company and they're finally ready to admit, like, I have been struggling you know, I'm about, um, my life is falling apart at home. I'm on a verge of a divorce and this is going on. You know, that's when there's a lot of shame that comes with it. I think, you know, unfortunately, when you've lived your whole life, um, not knowing why, you know, you were, this has been going on and why you were so great in one area like work, but you just couldn't get it together at home. There comes a lot of shame and guilt. The shame is the biggest, but the guilt and the anxiety and the, you know, really just feeling badly about your lack of actions or actions or, you know, your time management and all of that. So I think that's where the shame comes and stigma. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I see it as my sixth power because I multitask to a degree that most humans can. My multitask skills are incredible. But as much as I multitask, my anxiety meets me that way. So I multitask and I can do 10 things at once but my anxiety rises with my multitasking. And do you enjoy doing the 10 things at once? Like I don't know otherwise. Yeah. I don't know how to do one thing at a time. My mother always makes fun of me. She's like, when you come into the kitchen, it's 10 different things at the same time. If you're cleaning a room, you're 10 different places. If you're planning a party, you're planning everything together. If you're going somewhere, it's everything about that trip that comes into one list and I'm like, well, well, how do you do it otherwise? You don't have enough time. We gotta, we gotta get it done. Let's just, let's just do it. But now, when I'm more in touch with my healing, the last 13 years I'm healing, my kids make fun of me. So we were just in Florida last week, and we, my kids went um, to play golf. Like this, I forgot what it's called. It's like a digital golf. It's not miniature golf. It's a digital golf. And there's a barista there that that serves every cabin. And she's watching us play. And after like an hour, she comes up to me and she's like, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. She said, are these all your kids? I said, no, one of them is in Israel, but these are my kids. She's like, wow, they're so well behaved and you look so happy. How do you do it? So, and, and my daughter, and she's like, but you're not playing. I said, I know I can't play. I have no patience for it. So she's like, what do you like doing? So both of my daughters together say she likes meditating. She just likes being alone and in silence. And it's funny because tell me that 20 years ago would be a punishment for me. But now that I'm more aware of my anxiety, just give me silence. Just give me silence. And it's, and I could be in it all the time on my own in my backyard, just, just with my phone off, like just, I don't need anything, but it's because I'm aware that it's, that's helping my anxiety. It's helping my coping mechanism of, of everything. But it was like a complete change because growing up and like in my, from 18 till I got married at 26, I couldn't be in one place for more than an hour. I was on the go, 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 traveling the world, uh, at work, from meeting to meeting to meeting. And I was like doing a lot at such a young age. And then the shift happened. Yeah. But it sounds like you still are doing a lot. I do a lot. No, no. I do a lot. And then I lock myself in the room for two hours before I go to sleep or an hour before. And I just do my unwinding and my kids know mommy's in her room. It's that's it. It's no more kids time. I'm off. I'm off. 
yeah that's it no it's fully understandable so it's funny because one part of me multitasks crazy and then the other part of me just wants zen and craves zen and looks forward to the next time I'm gonna have it yes yes and I you know I can relate and um it's that you get to pick that chaotic day. You get to throw yourself into everything. Usually you get to pick it, right? You get to do this and this. And your brain craves the stimulation because it's exciting and it's keeping you going. And it's and you like, you know, kind of solving that problem and then putting out that fire and then making it all work. And there's not necessarily, there's, you know, almost a, a freedom of that. But there, you know, depending on how your day goes, I'm sure no matter what, there's a point when you're just spent. And it's almost like Groundhog Day where you forgot that you felt that way the day before, but you're just spent and it's just time to recharge. And usually a lot of adult ADHD brains need that time alone, whatever they're doing, just time alone without that distraction of the kids crying, screaming, fighting, without even the TV on, just like mindlessly watching that like that reality show or or online shopping or doing multiple things at once that are just so mindless that it's just really time to zone out and recharge and you know it's really just that time to be alone and I think that some people can do it with their spouse some people can do it with their kids right next to them but usually it's done by themselves and it's such a it's such a dichotomy between what they're like at other times of the day yeah. And the sound of TV makes me not like nervous. And like, I'm like, just, I don't like the TV. I don't, we don't have a TV. We don't have a TV, but they do have like, they don't have the cable, but they can connect something to it or Netflix or whatever. But, and they'll say, and they know mommy doesn't go to movies because mommy can't sit through a movie. Mommy can't watch a show. Mommy is not interested. So daddy does those things. Or the thing I'm willing to do is like, we'll watch Google like films of our family, like let's do a uh, Google photos of our family on a Saturday night. But don't, don't, don't ask me to sit through a movie because it's going to be torturous for me. But when I was younger, I was able to do it. Mm-hmm. But now there's just so much to choose from. Like if you're going to sit through a movie, that means you're not going to be able to read something else, an article or that. Like Or unwind. Or unwind. And I'm, I'm sure if you were allowed to go to that movie theater and press pause every five minutes to take a break when you wanted to and do something else, you would probably be a little more open to it or not. But most, you know, there's lack of control, lack of control of your time and your attention. Right. Right. So if I would like, let's say I get diagnosed. Now I'm very curious. I like I'm 46 years old. Maybe I should get diagnosed. But what what am I giving up as my superpower of multitasking? Like what happens if I do if I do decide to go on medication, which I doubt I will because I'm so scared of medication because I, I it took me years to get off of my antidepressants and I was so proud to get my brain really back because I did so much of the neuro, like the brain health and the 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 meditation and the mindfulness so but i'm wondering is there a payoff like what am i going to be giving up in order to gain something else right yeah so the right medication at the right dose doesn't really make you feel anything but better 
it really does not take away your, and you know, it, unfortunately, there's no net magic pill that's going to make it that you're not multitasking, that you're not waiting for that 11th hour to get things done. You know, I can give you all the stimulant in the world and you're still going to probably procrastinate a lot, still wait for some sense of urgency. But the initiation, motivation, since the motivation is really lacking for the inattentive type of brain, um, so the initiation, the motivation to get some of those mundane tasks done. Maybe you won't be going from every corner of the room when you're cleaning. Maybe you'll stick to, you know, just the closet area for a little bit longer than kind of going to, you know, your kid's room. And maybe you'll start doing some things a little more timely that you keep putting off that aren't that important. But ultimately, you really shouldn't lose you know, any of what you consider a super strength. A lot of people are nervous that they're going to lose that hyper-focus, which is just as much of a symptom as the inattentiveness, meaning hyper-focusing on work. But usually what happens is you're just able to transition more, meaning, yes, you can still hyper-focus, but then when you do need to take a break because your kids are calling or whatnot, you can. Hmm. I think that would be like a lot of people asking, like, what am I gaining from taking the medication? And what am I, what what are my risks of losing out on, right? What am I going to lose out on? And nothing's permanent. Nothing's permanent. Right. I'm always very skeptical when it comes to these things to do it very mindfully. So you've been mentioning mindfulness a lot. You, I, I heard you yeah. mention it a lot. So tell me about the mindfulness and how it can help with ADHD. So I think that anything that can get you out of your head and really have you focus just on, you know, your thoughts or just something around you, whether it's a mindfulness meditation, you know, maybe listening to Calm and app or Headspace, whatever it may be. And it doesn't have to be long. I always say with ADHD, you know, don't, don't compare yourself to a neurotypical brain, someone without ADHD, even if it means just a minute every morning of just, you know, kind of sitting quietly, you can use some sort of, you know, suggested app or some meditation video, whatever it may be. But just if it's on your own, just sitting there with your eyes closed or whatever it is, if you can't keep your eyes closed and just allowing yourself to just be. And when your thoughts are moving in, you know, all different directions, don't get angry, give yourself some compassion and then bring yourself back and just keep doing that for just a minute. And if you do that every day for a minute, you're going to notice some change. You're going to learn how to control those thoughts, those automatic thoughts. You're going to be able to slow down. ADHD is really a disorder of moving too fast. The brain is going too fast. Your actions, your emotions, everything is at the super speed. Even the inattentive symptoms are at a super speed since you just are fi so you find it so boring. I can't sit through that. That's so boring that oh, I can't listen anymore. Or, you know, so if you slow down, you tolerate the distress in the moment, which is why mindfulness can be so hard for an ADHD adult, is that it can feel like, you know, painful. Like it's almost like asking them to, you know, wash each disc, like very slowly and make, you know, kind of and not just have a really quick system or to, you know, do something very repetitive and very mundane that is just almost, you know, full laundry for a lot of folks. They find that just so boring. They'll have that laundry just sit and pile up. There's many that, you know, can fold it that night. But either way, just whatever it is that's going to allow you to just sit still. Hmm. I love mindfulness. I love it. I love it because it really relaxes my nervous system. And when that's I great. feel overwhelmed, when I feel overwhelmed, 
I just go into even a two minute break and I just breathe. And I say, okay, Matana, you have to breathe now. You have to relax. And it really takes me from a hundred to an 80, or sometimes if I'm an 80 to a 50, I can feel the calmness coming over me and I'm enjoying the next hour that much more because I brought my pressure down and I, and, and my breathing technique is my, is my, I call it my IV line to survival because I can't without it. I really, it's, I can't without it. I really can't without it. And I calm my nervous system. And I didn't know that it's because of that. I just realized that breathing just makes me more calm when I'm very anxious about something or there's a lot going on in my day and I'll say, oh my God, how am I going to get through it? I'm like, okay, time to breathe. Even though you have a thousand things going on, give yourself two minutes, five minutes of breath. And then you're going to go much faster and mindful, like be more present in the actions. Yeah. So it's really a tool. Yeah. And that presence allows you not to misplace your things, to look to, to actually listen to your partner when they tell you where to be, what time, right? It's all those, you know, a lot of folks think that they're just so forgetful or their, their memory is just off. Why, you know, it's just that life got so busy and complicated and you never took the time to slow down. Right. And so multitasking is great, but again, you know, I would really not necessarily call it multitasking. I would call it switch tasking, right? So it's just kind of going back and forth from one task to the next. Because true multitasking is hard, right? It's so true. Yeah. And so a lot of that is, it's less painful than having to do that other task for like that 20 minutes, right? That it entails. Um, There's something beneficial that you get from that switch tasking. And most brains with adult ADHD feel the same. Mm. That's so interesting. Do you think ADHD has to do from utero? Like, is it and is it a genetic? Is it something that has to do with our food, with our with our environment? Is it growing with years? Like ten years ago, was it as many as we have now? Twenty years ago, it wasn't as diagnosed, but it was there. It was just it was either undiagnosed, completely misdiagnosed, or just most likely you know, only diagnosed as depression and anxiety without the ADHD, but it's been there. You know, the prevalence rate has been there. It's just, it's a neurodevelopmental disorder. I mean, it's not something you acquire later in life. You're born with it. So you're born with it. Yeah. If one or your, you know, if one of your parents have it, there's a 50 to 60% chance that, you know, the child will have it as well. There's also, if you have ADHD, there's even like a 50% chance of some other type of family member having, or even you having some sort of learning disorder or processing disorder. So it runs in families. It also runs along some other, you know, disorders like anxiety and OCD and, you know, a lot of those things. The, The top comorbid disorder is actually social anxiety. So I have many people who've been socially anxious their whole lives and it got better because social anxiety does get better with time. But if they look back to grade school, you know, middle school, they're finally now maybe in, you know, their forties and finally coming out of their shell. And usually that's just the, you know, it's really hard to communicate and to feel vulnerable with other people when it's a hard time focusing when you're in groups of people, when you, you know, don't really, when you're always in your brain, when you're overthinking things, when you, when it's hard to organize your thoughts, organize your emotions, regulate your time. It's hard to have people rely on you or to rely on others. 
And also when you're not diagnosed, you know, you you may have a historically always been late or always been flaky. And so a lot of shame and embarrassment comes with that of not being a good enough friend, which can lead to some, you know, anxiety. One of the things that I'm very good at is time. I was never bad with time management. Never. Never. It's the opposite. I'm the one that's 10 minutes early or on time. But I'm thinking now if I'm the same with my children, if I'm oh, I'm always on time to pick them up or to take them somewhere. But I don't know if I'm on time to do the task that they asked me to do. That's not like <laughs> they'll be left behind. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, oh, I need you to sign this. I need you to read this over. I need that. I'll I'll probably I'll say tomorrow and I'll forget or something like that. But when it comes to on time, I'm super on time. And it really bothers me when people are not. It's one of my pet peeves when people are not on time and I have to be a little bit more forgiving. I'm working on that. But I'm wondering, is ADHD something that goes together a lot with highly sensitive people? Is it like, a, are they like very often come together? 100%. I would say, you know, all those, you know, great books, whenever I've, I've read them all, the highly sensitive person, all of them, they're great. But a lot of times it is, you know, not all the time, but there are some other, you know, comorbidities, but that highly sensitive person really does have the genetic, the brain chemistry that is ADHD. And, you know, the term that I mentioned earlier that William Dotson, the guru of adult ADHD coined was, you know, rejection sensitivity dysphoria. And that makes us think of, that's basically the sensitivity that comes with having ADHD. But it's not just about feeling, you know, dysphoric, meaning depressed or down because they're rejected. It's not just as um, simple as that. But this idea of rejection could just be perceived or it could be real rejection. So meaning if maybe someone, your boss kind of doesn't really give you a nice hello in the morning. An ADHD sensitive person may take that as you've done something wrong. You start mm. scanning, what did I do? Overthinking. As opposed to an, Yes, as opposed to a neurotypical brain who's not necessarily going to go down that pathway as often mm. or ever. Mm. I'm going to ask you something now that you don't have to answer, but do yeah. you take medication for your ADHD? Yes, I do. I mean, I'm not the best role model. I don't always take it, but I do take it. I take um, Vyvanse, I will say. And, um, you know, I think it it definitely helps. It's not you know, the old saying is pills don't build skills. And it's not a game changer. You know, it's not going to get me to start doing, you know, something that I've been putting off if I'm not mentally there. It will help with some things, but it's not the end all be all, meaning there's still a lot of skills and um, strategies that have to be implemented, you know, and it's a work in progress. I think that it's easy to take a medication and get, you know, 70 to 80 percent better it's the real the real hard work comes in when you are really having to put the time and effort in to learn how to plan to learn how to break down those you know tasks to learn how to prioritize to manage your time and also remember that not everyone is going to have the same issues so it depends like someone like you, for example, let's just say that you had a diagnosis of ADHD doesn't necessarily mean that just because you're good with time that you don't have ADHD. No, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Right. I have too many things from the ADHD symptoms that are likely that I do have it. 
Exactly. Exactly. And so I think don't get bogged down in like the idea that you don't check off all the boxes or like you're really good at something. So like, you know, I can hyper-focus, but that's also an AD. Also remember the opposite of everything is also a symptom. So inattentiveness, hyper-focus. So hyperactivity is one, you know, can I be a little hyperactive? Yes, but I would say I'm more hypoactive, meaning when I'm not in movement, it's hard to get me going. Like once I'm moving. So there are people like me who, you know, are not hyperactive, who are literally just the motivation is not consistent or the regulation of emotions. You can have dysregulation, which is more common, but then there's folks who have difficulty with even emoting with like, and that can be part of the ADHD as well. So do you work with your clients on acquiring these skills and practices, the mindfulness, the planning, the awareness? First of all, it's the awareness, like where are we falling short? Where do we need help? What are we getting the most complaints, quote unquote, about like, you do that with your clients. It's not just here's here's your pills. Tell me how you feel in two days. Then check in with me and then a week later. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't have enough time with all my patients, but I would say that my appointments are much longer than the average at like 30 minutes. So especially patients that are stable on their meds and they don't need much tweaking. Oh, we definitely discuss, you know, practical strategies, different, whether it's skill building or the emotional components, the cognitive restructuring of, you know, why they feel so invalidated and kind of relating it back to maybe not feeling good enough when they really weren't diagnosed and they weren't meeting their potential. And so all of that can be really discussed in a 30 minute period, you know, five minutes on meds. And then I have 25 minutes left to really discuss everything, which is great. Yeah. So I'm wondering when it comes to neuroplasticity, yes, can we fix the brain or, or lower, like really bring it back to a almost, what do you call it? A, uh, like a neurotypical or neurotypical brain. Can we do that with neuroplasticity with rewiring our brain? I think that, you know, that there's, depending on how severe your symptoms are, most people who come to see me are at that level of moderate to severe. And unfortunately, without that, you know, extra dopamine, no amount of, you know, endogenous type of treatment, such as enough of the right food and, you know, exercise, cardiovascular, weight training, um, supplements, most likely will not provide enough. But for some folks who are mild or maybe have really, really built a structure and compensatory strategies, I think that they could, if they're on the border of functioning and really feel like they, if they were just a little more mindful of their ability to meditate and to exercise more religiously and also eat a little bit better, I think it's possible. It's just, I wouldn't, I don't want to give people that false hope. Yeah. 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 Okay. So So diet is related to how intense our symptoms will be. So like if we get off of sugar, processed food, all these things will affect our ADHD. So it can make things a little bit better. I don't think that diet necessarily makes things that much that much worse in terms of, you know, where it's all, it's not all because of your diet that you're going to feel that much better. But when you don't have those sugar crashes and when you don't feel like you're just living off of caffeine and you have that, you know, that blood sugar is more like 
stable, you're going to be less affected by the dips in the dopamine, right? Anything that's kind of going up and down, I don't care if it's something that it's, you know, endogenous or it's something, you know, that you're putting into your system. When you have the fluctuations, even even um, hormones, you know, during our, you know, a woman's cycle, that affects everything. That's also alternates and is indirectly and directly related to the levels of dopamine. Wow. So if there was one thing that you wanted everybody to know about adult ADHD, like something that everybody, like people take for granted and you say I, the most like really like the, that, that, that thing that you tell people and they're shocked. What is that thing that you want people to know about ADHD, adult ADHD? Okay. So I think that this just comes to mind in terms of you can be really obsessive. You can have all of those to-do lists perfectly, you know, written out. You can be organized and, you know, you can be punctual and you can still have it. Meaning you may have built these great, great structures and systems for yourself, but are they hard to maintain? Are they easy? Do other things kind of get put up? you know, aside because you're having to maintain that. Do you, you know, is are your relationship is very like, you know, bothered by them. And also I think just knowing that, you know, ADHD doesn't exist the same level every day. Meaning during the pandemic, symptoms were acting up for many folks who hadn't had any issues with their ADHD symptoms for years. You know, so remember, during a transition, like a new baby, a divorce, a loss, a death of a loved one, that's when you can start to notice whether it's, you know, the symptoms reemerge or it's the first time you notice them. And usually what happens is the the strategies you've used are no longer helpful. Mm. So you're saying you can acquire skills through your life that you didn't even know why you acquired them and you put yeah. them into a system that worked for you. And like, no, this is who I am. But no, you acquired them because something wasn't working. And usually there doesn't have to be a system. And one yes. can, can create this whole way of living because of their ADHD. Yes. Or like your ex-husband who was, you know, really toxic in many ways. But after your divorce, you realize, oh, well, he had everything organized. He was, you know, paying all those bills all of, or he or she, whatever it is. So even those times when there's just been a lot of structure and almost someone else has been acting as your executive function, whether it's your partner, your parent, your sibling, right? Hmm. That's such a good uh, way of saying, like we, we only notice things sometimes when we don't have them, how it was functioning, and then we can find our dysfunction. Oh, that's fascinating. So if somebody wants to work with you, is it, do you work only in person, not on Zoom? So no, I work on only on Zoom for now. And you have to be in the state of Pennsylvania or New Jersey for now. And otherwise, you know, I definitely would look into reaching out to someone that you can find on the Chad website or on Attitude. Mm -hmm. Is there any other courses or tools that you give people that were diagnosed already with adult ADHD to manage themselves better? Yeah, that's great. So I am working on some adult courses and some different things for prescribers as well as, you know, loved ones with family members as well as individuals. At this point, there are some great different groups. Like there's definitely some different groups out there, depending on what your style is. There's, you know, multiple. And I think just going on and 
listening to some podcasts that you like regarding ADHD can really help navigate that. You know, some people like virtual, some people like in person, some people want individual. I would say that, you know, sometimes it's better to have a coach and a therapist work that is focused on the ADHD skills and also the, you know, the um, emotional baggage of ADHD of a late diagnosis. And other times you want to have them separate, meaning you just want to work on the skills, maybe with an individual coach or in a group and then kind of save therapy for someone else. Mm, that's such a good point that uh, I often tell my clients, you need a team sometimes to restart oh something. You need a team. Yeah. You need a good diagnostician and then you need a team to get you started. And then you start implementing in your life what needs to me needs most attention. And in 45 minutes a week, usually in therapy, it's not enough to actually start implementing the change. Yeah. And it's all about repetition. And I think with ADHD, especially, and knowing that, you know, kind of giving yourself like some grace and some self-compassion and knowing that you didn't get to this way overnight, you know, and if you could just make few changes, few changes in the next couple of years, just with that not acknowledgement, I think is a big deal. Yeah. So how do people reach you if they want to reach out to you? Yeah. So they can go on my website, which is drdarapsychiatry.com, or they can email me at drdara, drdarapsychiatry.com. And then I also, on the website, I have also a Wix app, which will take them to a little app that are resources and other group members. And there's just some cool, you know, modalities in terms of diagnosing and also just what can be useful in the world of adult ADHD. Okay. We're going to put those link in the show notes. I really, really was, uh, this was so informative and I'm, so um, I'm, I'm really grateful that I found you because it was something that to me was fascinating because I was diagnosing uh, my family members diagnosed me and I said, maybe it's time, maybe it's really time to sit down and, and, and decide and see what, what is it worth it and 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 is it worth seeing what can life be once I'm diagnosed and treated properly yeah no great I, I think it's never too late to get a diagnosis whether you decide to treat it is one thing but that diagnosis never too late yeah thank you so much Dara for your Dr. Dara thank for your you. time yeah I appreciate your wisdom and I appreciate your vulnerability to share your personal story and I think it's incredible how many doctors do you really think go through medical school with ADHD god oh a lot of them probably are undiagnosed like I was but yeah there's definitely a handful I and and they're probably falling apart they're even if they got through they're all the ones who have none of their paperwork, documentation. They're all the ones who are behind on their notes and have, you know, the administration yelling at them. They're great clinicians, but they can't get their work done. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. Thank you very much for your time and for your wisdom. You. I appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Look for Dr. Dara on the link in the show notes. And if you have any questions, reach out to her. And if somebody wants to maybe readdress their ADHD after 20 adult ADHD, maybe reach out. Maybe you'll find something new. Anyway, thank you very much. Bye till next time.
Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. And Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time. Looking to reduce your anxiety and stress, relax your muscles, or get a better night's sleep? Check out Maxifies.com, 100% legal hemp, where you can find doctor-formulated, lab-certified, high-quality CBD oils, tinctures, and other items, cultivated, grown, harvested, and packaged in the United States, and available in different sizes and strength formulas. Check out Maxifies.com, that's M-A-X-I-F-Y-Z.com, and use coupon code HOPE to get 10% off your order, plus free shipping. That's Maxifies.com.